welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or maybe uh, on the podcast to be greenmajority.ca. I'm Stephen Hostetter, and we're here uh, with one uh, with, a, with a special episode, an hour-long interview uh, with Emma McIntosh from National Observer. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yes, welcome back. And, you know... Your your primary primary role with National Observer is covering Queens Park, and uh, with COVID generally occurring, you know I think it's not totally unfair for the, our populace uh, generally to sort of take a, a step back and not pay as much attention maybe to provincial politics, especially I think as the national politics has has really taken front and center in regards to responses to COVID, but. You know, when you stop paying attention to things, things still happen, which is a which is a fun surprise. And so, so you've you've been covering it, and so we have this sort of whole slate of stories about things that basically the Ontario government has been doing while we've been gone. And the the I guess the opening thing that becomes obvious when you when you read this is we're not exactly getting one what might call a green recovery here. Uh, you know, can, can you give us sort of a high overview of, of what we've seen over the last three months? Well, I think if this recovery had a color, uh, it would definitely not be green. Like you said, it would probably be more like gray, hmm. like thinking asphalt, cement, concrete, that kind of thing. Right, right. Not like not even, not even overcast gray. We're talking cement gray. Yeah, yeah. Probably a pale gray, all things considered. Um, and that's because the Ford government is kind of the, the first phase of what they put out is really focused on building transit and building, well, transportation, which is sometimes transit and sometimes roads, um, and also building housing. So, you know, not inherently horrible things, but they're certainly not green and they've certainly received uh, some opposition for the way they've been doing it. Yeah. And, and so, so the first article, if you sort of go back to the beginning of June, um, the, the st- sort of struck my eye as I was going through these things, is you're, you have an article written, here's every environmental protection in Canada that has been suspended, delayed, or, and canceled during COVID-19. And during our, our coverage of, of COVID, we definitely sort of touched on some of these things about how many different places, especially the Ford government, had begun rolling back different environmental regulations as a way to, you know, quote unquote, stimulate the economy. But, but perhaps you can sort of dive into some of the most, uh, you know, maybe the biggest ones uh, or, or the most egregious. Sure. So in terms of the big players here, um, Ontario and Alberta really uh, <laughs> did much more than anyone else, um, as maybe would be expected, I guess. Um, so I think Alberta kicked it off. Um, they suspended a bunch of requirements for a bunch of industries to stop reporting environmental data. Um, so a lot of the time it's like, they they call it routine reporting, right? So it's, um, stuff like uh, the air quality or, um, the level of the river that they are drawing water from. And that stuff sounds kind of boring. And that's kind of what makes it, um, so tricky is because routine reporting is, done routinely because it's important, right? Like you brush your teeth every day, twice a day, at least I hope, but it's important. (laughs) Like that's why. Um, So 
that one got some attention and, and the government did uh, claw it back. But then Ontario kind of not long afterwards made its own moves in that direction. They suspended um, a big section of the Ontario Environmental Bill of Rights. And we love the Environmental Bill of Rights around here. Um, the part that the government suspended was the, the section that basically gives you the right to know what the government is doing with regard to the environment and to have them consult you on it. Um, so when that's gone, they don't have to tell you what's going on or ask you if you're okay with it. And they also suspended this portion of the law that like requires the government to consider um, environmental values, which is kind of this wishy-washy thing where like, I'm sure on some forum somewhere, every public servant has to check a box that says, I thought really hard about whether this would be good for like, what we say we want to achieve with the environment. Um, but like what, what experts tell me is that it's actually a really important thing, like a mechanism for public servants to hold the government to account from the inside. Mm. If they say, you know, paving over the green belt, um, I don't think that aligns with our statement of values very well. Then that at least gives them something to stand on. So it was a big change um, that's reinstated now, but that was pretty tremendous. Um, Quebec also kind of like tried to um, get rid of some environmental laws uh, with their recovery bill. And um, the last time I checked, uh, the act had been tabled, but there was some outcry because of some technicalities around when it happened. Um, the government actually needed consent from opposing parties. And so they, they didn't reach a deal. And now a decision on that is kind of delayed until the fall. So there's, there's still time. Um, those are the highlights. I think mostly pretty much every province with an oil industry uh, gave them a bit of a break on some things. <laughs> That's probably the big one to walk away with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Scanning this, it was interesting. You know, you see PEI and New Brunswick and the Northwest Territories and the Yukon are the sort of four that seem to, to not have taken this tact. Um, which is which, which I think you know is interesting for you know in in regards to smaller smaller populations you know not clearly relying on oil. You just look at Alberta's in comparison; it's it's a huge list. If if anyone wants to go, we'll we'll share the link on the on the show notes. But it's it's quite an extensive list of these different things. And the federal government got in on the action too. They sure did. It was much smaller scale. Um, but it wasn't nothing. Basically, uh, I, w I was kind of surprised that this one snuck in, but Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson um, announced this new regulation that would basically allow companies that want to do exploratory drilling off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador to just like completely skip the typical impact assessment process. Um, they wouldn't even be individually reviewing wells like under this regime. They would just kind of have to meet some general conditions. So people weren't happy about that. Um, they also like delayed some other stuff and extended some deadlines around air emissions. The The clean fuel standard um, is not going to be happening when it was supposed to happen now. And so is a plastics ban. Um, but we've been assured that those things will still happen in due course, which is another interesting thing, right? A lot of stuff was just delayed. Right. I did actually, it's funny. I had a, I had a friend of mine, half sarcastically asked me if Trudeau was still going to ban plastic forks and I didn't have an answer. I have had I done this interview, the answer would have been yes, but later. And I didn't know that when he asked me, I was like, so. Like, so now, there's yeah. other things to worry about right now, Brian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like 
I mean, there's always a lot of things to worry about. Yeah. Um, but it was, a, you know, it's, yeah. So that's, so that is delayed. All right. Fair enough. Um, and then a few days, a few days into June, uh, perhaps the biggest um, response or, or move from the Doug Ford government occurred. And, and, and which is still having repercussions to this day. And so this might take a bit of time to unpack. We might come back to it in another story, depending on how you want to roll this. But, but shortly thereafter, they released their sort of omnibus budget bill. Um, or omnibus, sorry, not budget bill. Totally scrapped that. Their other <laughs> omnibus environmental bill that sort of has a sig- that significantly impacted different parts of environmental assessments, um, you know, all under this guise of economic recovery. Right. So we're talking Bill 197. Yes. Don't even think it had an official name. Maybe it did. Um, I'll double check. If you don't, if you don't, if you want people to forget about a bill, only give it a name of like a number. No one remembers numbered bills' names. You give it a real name, then people get, it'll stick in their heads. Oh yeah. Okay. So it did have a name. It was the COVID nineteen Economic Recovery Act. That's not very snazzy, but you know, I'll give them. I'll give them that one. They gave it a name. So right. um, appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So that one actually that did a lot. It um. It touched like 20 pieces of legislation. And I think people are perhaps most upset about the environmental bits, but there was a lot there. Um, I think there was even a bit about marriage licenses, um, like extending the timeline for marriage licenses. So if you got one in uh, mid-March, you might not have to get a new one so quickly if you hadn't had the wedding yet. Anyways, there's a lot jammed in there. There's even stuff about school boards, um, which is kind of the point of an omnibus bill, right? You just jam as much in as you can. But um, there were a few people mad about this. Uh, and that, again, goes back to the Environmental Bill of Rights. Um, so there were some pretty pivotal environmental changes in here. One of them was a complete rewrite of environmental assessments. Um, and a lot of people who are much better at reading legislation than me say that basically it would water down the whole thing that a lot of stuff that uh people fought for pretty hard um is now gone and that a lot of the things that everyone had kind of flagged as being wrong with environmental assessments didn't get fixed if anything the auditor general thought that ontario's environmental assessment process was deeply flawed um, and not comprehensive enough um like in ontario we don't even have mandatory environmental assessments for private sector projects like, Isn't that any, weird? Wait, like, wait, any private sector project? It's like discretionary only. Um, so if it's a private sector project, they don't have to do one unless the government decides that they probably should. Right. Um, it's not mandated by law. So that means a lot escapes scrutiny or scrutiny already. Um, a lot escapes scrutiny. And the Auditor General had like released some recommendations over the years you know, there used to be this one mechanism that would like allow uh, citizen groups to access some funding to help them get their own experts so that they could look over the environmental assessment data themselves and like come to the table um, with a bit more firepower because when you're going up against like the government or like a big company for the rare cases where they do have to do assessments, it's not always easy. Um, and that's that's gone now. That I think expired under... Uh, a previous government and was never reinstated. So um, there have been some, you know, requests to bring that back. Anyway, none of that is in here. Um, instead, it's streamlined. Right. And uh, streamlined has almost never not meant just pared down. 
Like, like, like I have n- streamlined to me is like when a group says it's looking after taxpayers, you know, it, it is, is a very similar vibe of what you actually mean is that there's just going to be smaller government and it is and likely less effective. Like, yeah. like, like what's interesting is that you sort of mentioned, I think in, in some of the other reporting that, that previous versions of the environmental, environmental assessments here in Ontario weren't like beloved even by environmentalists but that this version like solved none of the actual real issues and if anything just exacerbated some of the other problems yeah yeah one thing that i found really interesting is that everybody actually agrees well everybody that i talk to agrees that environmental assessments take too long here Mm. um and where they kind of differed very widely was um in what's causing that. So the foreign government says the problem is the process. The process is too slow and it's too rigorous and it's unnecessarily uh, long and complicated. Um, environmentalists say the opposite, that actually the problem is that the companies or whoever is pushing the project isn't bringing enough information. And so they have to fight at every stage to get the information that they want, which ends up taking years and costing a lot of money. Um, and so there are ways to like increase the requirements for what the, the project proponent has to bring to the table up front, but that, that did not happen here. And, uh, some people are actually worried that the changes can make things more cumbersome because, uh, like one thing that happened was that, um, this one mechanism that allows citizens to ask the minister to bump it up to like a full environmental assessment, um, if it didn't already need one is gone. Um, unless it's a treaty rights issue, which like, mm-hmm. is getting way into the weeds of it. But that's an important mechanism for the public to participate. If they don't have that, the next available option is what? Like a, a lawsuit? Like, <laughs> and what you think is, you know, is going to take longer? Um, so if more of these things are going through the courts, that has the potential to slow down the process even more. Right, right. And so uh, I, I want to get to some of the concerns around this bill. And, and and I think I'm going to save the the critics specifically to the second segment of the show. But to end this first segment, let's talk about how the Auditor General responded. Right. Okay. So the Auditor General, before this bill was passed, flagged a, a very significant problem. And um, remember, I was talking about the Environmental Bill of Rights. So that requires that before legislation that changes the environment significantly is passed. The government has to do a 30-day consultation. They have to post it online on this website, uh, the Environmental Registry of Ontario. And then they have to take in all the public comments and process them and then make their final decision. Even if they don't actually listen or care, they still have to go through the consultation. Um, And there were roughly two weeks between when this bill was introduced and when it passed. And there was a bulletin that went onto the environmental registry, but it was like an information bulletin. It wasn't really for consultation. And the auditor general sent the premier's office a note and was like, hey, uh, you're going to be not compliant with Bill 197 or with, uh, with the Environmental Bill of Rights with this bill. If you pass it before doing the consultation, you need to do the consultation. Um, and the government uh, went ahead and passed it anyways. And um, so I I think I I found out about that the day that it passed because uh, some opposition parties had kind of flagged the same problem and and brought it up. But um, yeah, so the the Auditor General was not very happy. Um, But 
this is one of the problems I think with the Environmental Bill of Rights. There aren't really any consequences. So I was curious about that. Is like what happens when the Auditor General, like she literally states in this in this piece that it was not compliant with the law, but it's unclear if that has any implications. Yeah, yeah, and that I've been trying to figure this out as far as I can tell. Um, nothing bad happens. Like people can challenge it in court and, uh, you know, people are, um, but whether or not they can really achieve much in court beyond just getting a judge to say that was very, very bad is unclear. Right. And, um, I mean, the auditor general, she told me that she's going to, you know, write it down and it's going to go in her annual report. And, you know, that's kind of it. Um, so I don't know any brilliant legal minds out there who uh, are aware of some consequences that I could not find in the act. Please let me know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And maybe let everyone else know so they can, this government can be hold, held to account in some way. Right. Um, so I did mention that there were, you know, that there are now responses from other people. Uh, so we're going to get to that right at the other side of this first music break. We will return with Emma McIntosh from National Observer. Be right back. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found on greenmajority.ca. This is a special hour-long interview uh, with Emma McIntosh from the National Observer, who we're talking about all the things Doug Ford did while we were paying too much attention to either COVID or desperately trying to pay attention to anything but COVID. Uh, so the last few months have been a um, have been a time for us all, but really a time of change within environmental rules here in Ontario. And we were talking at the you know at the right before the music break about Environmental Bill One Ninety Seven, and you've recovered extensively some of the people who are pushing back against it, and it's it's coming from multiple places. So let's start with the environmentalists. Sure. So um, I think with like a lot of past examples, um, the only way that I think environmentalists have been able to push the Ford government on some of this stuff has been through the courts. And so that's what we're seeing. Um, Ecojustice has filed an application um, and they're representing two other charities. Um, and those charities are... They are <laughs> Greenpeace Canada and the Wilderness Committee. It's in my brain. Um, and so they are asking the judge for um, basically just, a, you know, a, a statement saying that uh, this wasn't cool and it was unlawful. They're not asking for the law to be struck down. Um, I think what they're more aiming for is for a judge to say that this is like not cool and illegal. Um so that the next time something like this happens, if there is a next time, they can point to that and be like, hey, that judge said it was illegal. Uh, I'm not sure how effective that is. Um, a judge did find that Doug Ford broke the law when he canceled cap and trade. Remember that? A million years ago? Man. Woo! What Woo! a... What a, now. Yeah, there was a couple things I remember from like last year, a year before, and I was like, man, that feels like years. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, a different era almost. <laughs> but anyway, that didn't really uh, stop uh, Ford from doing this. So, you know, they're trying. Um, and I commend them for it because I'm sure that's expensive and difficult. Um, yeah. We'll see what happens there. Um, but there's not actually really a, this, this isn't, you know, there are, there are some legal challenges that are, you know, that are actually seen as, you know, big, um, useful tools that, you know, we've talked a lot about how indigenous groups and environmentalists have been able to use courts to fight pipelines, but this particular challenge does not feel like it's like a victory here does not undo the bill. No. And that's, that's the difficult thing with the way that Ontario's environmental law is written. There aren't a lot of consequences. Um, this might not be the only lawsuit. Um, a lot of First Nations have been very upset. And uh, there have been whispers and suggestions coming out of uh, a few nations that, that might want to do their own application for judicial review hmm. on this one. And that just means like they're going to ask a judge to look at it and make a finding. And um, because like no filing has been made yet that I've been able to find, I don't know what they're going to ask for. Um, if they were to ask for the judge to strike down the law, that would be a slightly more spicy outcome than the environmentalist application, but we'll see. Right. Yeah. So to, to segue there, there, you, you have a couple of stories about this sort of growing uh, number of First Nations that are raising concerns about this bill. Um, you know, in, the, in an article that you published in, in, just a couple weeks ago, you sort of mentioned that there's the Grand Chief of, of Mushkawak Council, which represents Fort Albany, Attawapiskat, and five other nations near James Bay, all sort of pushing for this already. So there's, there is already a group of nations sort of beginning to, to voice their concerns. Right, right, exactly. And um, the, uh, like the Council of Chiefs in Ontario met last week. And uh, this bill was on the agenda. Now, the resolutions that they, they make aren't public, um, but I expect that something interesting might come out of that if they have decided to do anything about it, because um, I know that it's not just the very far northern First Nations who are upset. There are others as well. Right. And, and this sort of ties in um, a bit to, a, to another sort of fight that, that, that the, the Ford government is experiencing in regards to their sort of you know, refusal to listen to, to First Nations or land defenders, uh, which is a, a sort of much more, you know, the, the, the reoccupation of Caledonia residential development in regards to the 19, uh, sorry, the 1492 land back lane is, is yet another example of sort of uh, this sort of growing resistance, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And that is definitely worth like its own hour to discuss. Um, right. But yeah, with Bill 197, treaty rights has come up um, because these nations weren't consulted and um, treaty rights are definitely coming up again with what's going on in Caledonia with six nations of the Grand River. Um, the tract of land along the, the Grand River has like this, this very interesting history where it was promised to six nations. Um, and over the years uh, has been very much chipped away at. Um, and, you know, I think that Six Nations has a lot of complaints about whether they were actually compensated for the land, whether it was fairly taken. Um, they do not think it was fairly taken or that it, they were fairly compensated for it. And uh, Doug Ford's response to this um, was, <laughs> so let me give you the image. Uh, Doug Ford had just announced that Ontario is hiring 200 more provincial police officers. 
and he's got a line of cops standing behind him in like that stance, you know, like with their, their legs just a little bit wide and their arms kind of like crossed in front of their bodies. Um, and uh, he promised that if anyone throws a rock at a cop, he is going to come after them. Uh, he said he was going to come out swinging. Um, and the next, the next day, I think, uh, Ford was doing another press conference with the prime minister, prime minister, Justin Trudeau. And, um, that day, like the, the federal government kind of had agreed to actually sit down with six nations and, and keep trying to settle the land claim problem. Um, and <laughs> Ford said, yeah, like, you know, that's nice. It, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you're doing. I'm going to protect the police. Um, and he, he kind of said, you know, I'll, I'll protect the First Nations as well, but I'm going to protect the police. Um, one of my favorite comments of his about this whole dispute was he said um, that the, the people who are demonstrating are, like the land defenders are denying people their future homes. Um, yeah, which is I obviously, you know, what did Settler Canada do beyond exactly that, right? It's the, perhaps the the most tone deaf thing you could say in a land dispute against like the, it's in the name first nations, you know, like it's, it's the most transparently like refusal to respect what the history of this land is, you know, to, to, to use that kind of language. Yeah. A a bit ironic, a a bit ironic. Um, And I don't think it went over very well with many people at uh, 1492 Land Back Lane. Um, they've actually asked Ford for an apology because um, they feel that like what he is saying and what some other local politicians are saying um, gives kind of fodder to vigilantes who go seeking conflict and who they're like afraid are going to inflict violence against them. Um, mm-hmm. People from the rebel have showed up, uh, which, you know, I don't think was violent, but certainly looked unpleasant. Well, and and and, and the, the fact the rebel shows up dramatically increases that the rebel viewers will show up, which is dramatically more dangerous. And right. what's interesting is that is that that kind of response you're seeing actually in other places across Canada, where where First Nations individuals are are sort of putting their rights out. In that, how consistently the tiny house folks in in BC are being consistently harassed. Uh, by by groups of of of, of um, you know sort of white supremacists who are who are showing up and and making you know and making them feel unsafe in a very sort of similar like we're going to show up we're not necessarily going to actually physically attack you or there has been some altercations but it's clearly an, a, a very severe intimidation tactic uh, as a way to try to push this, these things forward. And right, so- right, and then uh, with the Wet'suwet'en as well, which like was the last time that a, a similar conflict really got national news attention and um, somebody just burned down one of the hereditary chief's cabins. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I believe they arrested two, uh, two young guys for that, but I'll, I would have to double check. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote here from one of the land defenders uh, who's identified in this global news article only as, only as Micah, which, uh, which, which I think is a useful sort of understanding of some of the problems, which is, yeah. The quote, the settler population keeps growing and expanding and taking land, and it's extremely inequitable to keep indigenous people stuck on static pieces of land, even though their populations are continuously growing as well. Which, you know, is one of those things which is just 
you know, obviously true at its at its face, right? You know, you have two growing populations and the idea that one needs to keep figuring it out and while the other continually sort of expands, you know, is is obviously an issue and and one that has to be resolved that and it cannot be resolved through sort of just the consistent taking of more land because you're only going one way here. You know? Yeah. Um but so to, to, to sort of to move on slightly from that to some of the other things, because I do want to get to some of these other stories, because uh, I do think they're important. The, and I don't think this was included in the omnibus bill. So, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but the, the, the work that the Ford government did to, to start removing endangered species protections in the Golden Horseshoe, was that connected to the omnibus bill or is that just an entire other thing they did? That was a whole nother thing. Also, before we go much further, I have a correction. The suspects in the burning of the cabin were not arrested, as far as I can tell. They were just identified. Um, but anyways, moving on. Yes, endangered species. Um, yeah, that was a whole separate thing. That was like the, the theme of July uh, for me. It was all about the endangered species. Um, so, did, oh, I guess that was June, but, you know. It was end of June, so it would have bled into July. I'm sure I was thinking about it in July. Um, yeah, so one thing that I learned while reporting on the endangered species stuff that I would like to share is how much influence the aggregate industry has in Ontario. Mm. Um, and I say this because a year ago, when I had just moved back to Toronto and everything was getting uh, ready for the federal election, I noticed these posters going up and they were like, Ontario needs gravel, Canada needs gravel. And I was like, wow, everybody's got a lobbyist. <laughs> Little did I know, the sand, gravel, and aggregate industry has, like, very many lobbyists. <laughs> and they are very powerful interests because they use aggregate to do construction. That's, like, a construction material. And wow. so when we're talking developers, we're talking aggregate. Wow. Um. And I felt very silly for not thinking of that. Instead, just going, oh, you got a load of that poster. But honestly, no, that was I a would, organized campaign. Um, I, would have a, I would have a similar reaction. Everybody needs gravel is an inherently funny concept that, like, to think that they are running our politics. It was sort of similar how when I, when I found out how much power, like, the horse lobby has in Ontario, I had a similar type of, like, what? But then you realize, that, but like, yeah, like, this, like, there's just like you have to cater to the horse people if you want to win a provincial election, apparently. But but <laughs> I've never heard of the gravel people and their power. So please elaborate. Right, right. So um, for for a very long time, this industry has been asking to expand the area around the Golden Horseshoe. And remember, the Golden Horseshoe is like uh, basically like the western part of Lake Ontario, like the ring around there. They they really wanted to expand the area in the Golden Horseshoe that they can build quarries in um and so for a long time there has been this complete like absolute prohibition on building any quarries in a protected habitat for like an endangered species um and one particular species since i know i know everybody's curious is the jefferson salamander who is just very sweet he's uh he's got nice eyes um, and I spent a long time tracking down a picture of a salamander for this article. Um, everyone got to check out this article. Uh, it is called <laughs> Ford government plans would strip endangered species protections in golden horseshoe critics say on national observer.com. 
just to see a photo of this salamander because it is, it's good stuff. Thank you. Thank you for the endorsement. Um, and so I guess the, the problem is salamanders, these salamanders, Jefferson salamanders, uh, love living in aggregate habitat. Um, and that's pretty much like the Niagara escarpment, which is, um, you know, part of the golden horseshoe. So the aggregate industry, their concern is that if you take out everything that endangered species live in, there's actually not a lot of places that you can like mine aggregate here. And it's important to have that like close to Toronto for, from their perspective, because you got to truck the stuff in. It's heavy and that in turn brings its own emissions because like if you're carting it all around the province, that's just by truck. Um, and so their argument is that it would be better for the environment to just let us destroy some habitat. Um, and they pay into a fund to support species recovery. So they think it could be positive in the long run. Um, not everyone buys that. And uh, a lot of people were certainly upset. And the Ford government decided um, that they we're going to side with the aggregate industry on this one. And they, they proposed, I don't believe it's been made into law yet. They proposed to strip that protection. Um, and they are going to make it easier to build quarries. Um, and they kind of did this in a weird way. They, they buried it in the growth plan, which is like this very long document that explains how like the golden horseshoe area is going to change. Um, you know, some other folks had other criticism about that, plan like related to sprawl um and like population projections um and this was just kind of one part of that um but if you think about what a quarry is like it's just a big hole in the ground right like everything on the top gets removed and it's loud and it's dusty so um it's not insignificant you know i think um like aggregate certainly is a, an industry that's been very important for Ontario's economy, but um, we're also talking about like species that are dwindling very quickly. So it's, it'll be interesting to see what the government decides to do with that one. Well, and, and you mentioned, you know, even just you know, in the last segment, how private industry is not expected to run environmental assessments. And so fat, you could very easily see them digging a quarry, making a quarry without even having to actually fully understand what the impacts could be. Yeah, yeah, that, that is part of it too, right? Like these things all very much um, are part of the same ethos, I think. Like what we've seen from the Ford government is a push for development. Um, you know, Ford's run for office was very much supported by developers. And um, he's certainly very pro-development and pro-construction. And a lot of these things kind of fit into that same agenda, right? It's all kind of pointing towards the same purpose. Yeah. And, and so, so it's funny. I actually, when I had pulled up these stories, I had actually presumed that this second story was connected to the first story because they both have endangered species involved. But it turns out that they're not, that the second one actually appears to be connected to logging. And oh, yeah, and, forestry. Yeah. Like, this is an entire, like five days later, there was a different article written and understanding about a, about a different part of our Indigenous Species Act being, being thrown out for a different industry. Yeah, yeah. So this one is forestry. Um, and so like forestry in Ontario is this other interesting like area where Doug Ford has like been making changes for a while. Um, so 
way back in like December, I want to say, the government um, introduced this like new draft plan for how we're going to do forestry in Ontario. And the, the main thrust of that was that they wanted to harvest way more wood and leverage that like market opportunity. Um, and so as part of that, I guess, um, the government wants to do stuff that will make it easier for the forestry industry to do what it's doing. Um, so the government, also we should know, the PC government did weaken like existing endangered species protections in 2019. And they did that, they did that one through like the, the basic way, the avenue of the Endangered Species Act. <laughs> so um, anyways, Forestry companies are exempt from that. They don't even like uh, adhere to the Endangered Species Act. Um, and that's an exemption that existed for a long time. Um, instead, they kind of follow this other law called like the Crown Forest Sustainability Act. Um, and that was due to expire on June 30th. Um, the provincial government in that plan that they released in December, which they actually just finalized uh, like this month. So it's it's the real deal now. This is the plan. They decided that they really want to make that exemption permanent. Um, and a lot of people who know a lot about endangered species say that this is a very, very bad idea. Um, yeah, well, you, and, but, sorry, go ahead. I was, uh, you you got to think that when you think about endangered species, a lot of them live in forests. And so the like this, like that's the prime place I would imagine endangered species would be at risk, would be to the logging industry. Right, right. Think about like woodland caribou. Um, now, like, I think what, what where it gets really, really interesting is like the intent of the law, because the, the the forestry law, like the one for them, um, includes stuff about like habitat protection, but the intent is different than what the Endangered Species Act does. So, I mean, that's already been weakened, but uh, at its prime, I guess, like the Endangered Species Act is supposed to support the recovery of species. So, like, not only does it want to stop damage or stop the decline, it also wants to help them get back to where they were. Um, the Crown Forest Sustainability Act doesn't do that. It's aimed at minimizing the damage. So they're still, like, diminishing that's happening. It's just happening much more slowly, um, which, you know, to a lot of people is, is not the same thing. It is a pretty crucial difference, I guess. Yeah, not yeah. Yeah. Um, I will withhold my comments on that one. Uh, <laughs> so the the government, because of COVID, they didn't quite have the time to formalize like making it permanent. Um, so in June, they just made it uh, into like you know they just extended that one. They kicked the can down the road a little bit longer until they can do it for real. But that that's long term where this is going. Right. Right. Well. Um... We, we're going to head uh, to one more music break and then we'll come back uh, with the last couple of stories to, to finish out this, this weird three months of the summer of Ford, as we're calling it. Uh, <laughs> so we'll be right back after a music break. See y'all real soon. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country. 
or maybe on the podcast, CoomtownAgreeMajority.ca. I am Stephen Hostetter, your host today for this special episode, an hour-long interview with Emma McIntosh from National Observer, covering the summer of four. Uh, we've gotten all the way up to August, I think, uh, mostly, although we're, I'm going to jump back all the way back to June again to cover a story that we did not uh, mention. We mentioned it previously briefly on the show uh, when it was happening, but but you wrote a story about it, so you might have a, 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 a much sort of wider thought or understanding about it, which is this new ag-gag law that, that, um, on, that the Ford government has put forward. Egg gag, of course, means agriculture gag, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the best thing I can figure out. Yeah, uh, which, which it's all about trying to, you know, to, to keep people from whistleblowing, really, against these large agriculture businesses. But can you sort of give us a better sense? Sure. So um, I think one thing that's important to note is that, like, the government, what they say that this bill is, was about and what uh, I think farmers groups really wanted it to be about was just protecting the food supply and private property from trespassers. Um, now, trespassing is already illegal. You didn't miss anything there. Right. Um, but <laughs> the bill goes a little bit further. So what it did was it um, specifically prohibited people from blocking any vehicles that are carrying livestock. Um, it gives farmers this weird ability to like arrest trespassers, like a like I want to call it a citizen's arrest, but like I guess a farmer's arrest question mark. Um, and then it also like opens up people who violate uh, what's been set out in the bill for like a new avenue of civil lawsuit. Um, and that was Bill 156. Uh, Alberta actually did something very similar last year. Um, but I think like if you want to know what this is really about like a big picture think about all those images um from like when people are protesting meat packing plants or, or farms where like people are blocking the trucks they're trying to like feed the pig through or like give the pig water through their truck or something like um that's exactly what they're trying to stop from happening um now the problem and the reason why uh, actually, journalists' associations uh, got mad about this. The Canadian Association of Journalists uh, had a few thoughts. Um, is because it, the way that this was done, it kind of seems like um, this bill could also target whistleblowers who are trying to speak out about um, unsafe conditions or cruelty. Um, one thing that it did is it, it made it kind of illegal to go undercover uh, to get into one of these facilities under false pretenses. And like, no one really loves doing this. Like, I don't think, I think people maybe have like a romantic vision of like, I'm a journalist and I'm going to put on my hat and like hide a wire or something. But we don't actually do that very often. Well, uh, I do wonder a little bit, sorry to, to interrupt. I do wonder a little bit how you could prove someone went in with false pretenses versus someone who went in and then found themselves, you know, disgusted by what they saw. Like there's, there seems to be like, I'm sure there's some clear cut cases, but also uh, like it does, I can fully see how this can be used to, to stop whistleblowers. If that's yeah. sort of your distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of it was that it was written uh, to outlaw like unauthorized filming mm. and that sort of thing, um, which is where whistleblowers could get snagged. Um, and you know, sometimes like, that kind of undercover work is also really important. Like, um, there's this really wonderful reporter at the Toronto Star named Sara Mojetzadeh, 
and she went undercover at um, a factory. A bakery or a a bread factory or something? Yeah, yeah. And she, you know, a a few workers had died there and she saw very close up how that might have happened, you know? Uh, It was very revealing and it was really, really good work. Um, And I think, like, I don't think, I don't know that uh, agricultural facilities have really been targeted by journalists that hard, (laughs) like in the the decade that I've been paying attention. Um, But it would be illegal in this case. And, you know, there are a lot of like animal rights groups that have exposed cruelty through those methods as well. Um, and it does get into charter issues too. I mean, like free expression is a thing. Um, we are allowed to have that. Um, there's some other weird ones. Like the, the law creates like animal protection zones, which are those zones where you're not allowed to do certain things. Um, hmm. Which actually I'm, I'm really trying hard not to make animal farm jokes uh, <laughs> and I'm not going to do it, but I just want people to know that that Avenue is there. Right. Um, available to people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so like the other interesting thing about it too, is that like there were a bunch of similar laws in the States and they all got struck down. Um, so like, it might not last if people challenge this. Um, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association certainly like didn't feel like it hadn't long, like a, if you know anyone wanted to, but um, it's it's an interesting, interesting one. Kind of a weird aside also. And like the, I guess, what was June? It was like kind of like this weird midpoint in the pandemic where things were kind of getting better and it didn't feel like, existential dread all the time but like i was still quite distracted it was like oh what that went by okay that happened weird yeah when especially uh, uh, i mentioned this and we'll move on but especially given how much and at the time uh, there was a fair amount of attention being paid towards you know meat packing plants not exactly the same but especially in cargill or the cargill meat like alberta had sort of been this hotbed for for COVID, and this and, and the meat industry was under sort of this ex- ex- scrutiny, not so much for how it's treating animals, but how people who worked in the meat industry are being treated specifically. And right, that's a really good point too, because like some of what we know about Cargill came from uh, people who were willing to like share what they were seeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I wanted to ask that question of Doug Ford, and that was in the part of the summer where. I did not get any questions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I did not get to find out. Um, but uh, I'm sure he would have had something interesting to say. No, interesting is a, is a very kind word to use there. Uh, so the last story I wanted to get, touch on, which we've covered on actually perhaps the most on the show, I was able to get someone on last week to talk about it more so, but you wrote a slightly different angle, which I hadn't covered yet, which is my deep dislike of Highway 413. and uh, and the number of ways that it will be bad, but the, <laughs> but 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 you've covered actually the concept which we didn't really talk about too much, which is the green belt and what it might do there. So can you can you talk about uh, Highway Four Thirteen in that context? Right, right. So um, I'm sure you're all very educated at this point about uh, Highway Four Thirteen, the GTA West corridor. Um, but one thing that I think I kind of lost in all this is that it. Like we literally just cut right through the green belt. And I think when most of us think about Ford and the environmental file, and maybe not like us as in like the, the people who listen to the green majority, but like normal people, um, 
like a lot of people think about the green belt and all those times where Ford got like really close to doing something to it or where he said he was going to, and then everybody got really mad and shouted at him about it. And then he took it back and promised never to touch the green belt. And I think in June, he renewed that promise again. He was like, I'm not going to touch the green belt. I mean it. I won't do it. Um, but now we have the final uh, route for Highway 413, and it cuts right through the green belt. Um, and that could have, you know, some ramifications. Um, it's protected for a reason. So it would cut right through the headwaters of the Credit uh, and the Humber River. Um, it would cut through some significant endangered species habitat. It would cut off some wildlife corridors that currently exist, not to mention like go through uh, really important agricultural land. Um, and then there's like the whole thing that I'm sure everybody expects me to talk about now, which is like the induced demand part of it, like the effect on emissions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that cars will literally just fill a road if you give it to them. Um, and so if, you know, if this does go through, it's all but guaranteed that um, emissions from uh, cars are going to probably go up. And, and it's a toll road. Yeah, that's another weird thing. It's like, does anyone use Highway 407 on purpose? Yeah. And the, the existing toll road that we have in, uh, in this area? Yeah, yeah. I, like there, anyways, I, I've got on this enough, so I don't want to beleaguer my, our audience uh, too much more about my complete bafflement about this. So and 30 to 60 seconds of time saved by... <laughs> not enough time saved. And as a, a point I made last week was just the fact that we're in a moment where commuting is being reconsidered almost altogether. And so right now does not seem like the time to um, consider the highway. One really interesting thing about this, not to belabor it, belabor it too much, but um, I think the cost of the project is really interesting when you compare it to some other things the Ford government is doing. Like uh, think about the Gardner project um, and like, I guess that only like reduced travel times for uh, like some drivers by a little bit, right? right. Um, that was around one billion. Yeah. Um, or like, look at I don't know other transit projects. Like, how many <laughs> how many dollars are we willing to spend on something, and how much do we expect it to accomplish? I think are the, the questions that I will be interested in as this project apparently moves forward because it looks like they're really doing that. Yeah, yeah. Like the the comparison of, of of the number of different ways that you can move people more effectively and faster for the five billion dollar price tag this thing apparently has is astronomical. Yeah. Um, so, so the last question I have for you is more open ended and does not have to do the stories that you've covered previously, but it's more for a you know for the the uh, the members of our of our listening audience who want to sort of you know. Be paying attention to things that where you where you know you, you have your ear to the ground uh, you know pretty pretty closely, and so what should people be paying attention to as we head into the fall in regards to sort of you know the provincial sphere or if you have other tips anywhere else? Right, right. Well, I think if we're talking Ontario, what I'm really interested in is like the contrast between what's happening here and what's happening in Ottawa. So. You know, obviously, as we have clearly outlined, like the the recovery is not green so far, um, and I don't think the government has any intentions to make it green. Um, 
but the feds have a very different vision. Um, you know, we actually even saw a bit of reporting uh, from, I believe, Reuters, who said that part of why Bill Morneau left his role as finance minister in Ottawa was because there were disagreements over how much green spending should be happening. Um, and that's going to be really interesting to watch because, like, how much control does Doug Ford even have if his, his bestie, Christia Freeland, uh, decides that that's the agenda that they're pushing, you know? So that's going to be something weird to watch, whether that new friendship falls apart. <laughs> and, you know, the, the election that is happening in November, the big one, the one south of the border, um, I think that a lot of the time we forget how much we share with the U.S. You know, we share airways, waterways. Um, and, the, you know, the Arctic becomes an issue. So that one stresses me out. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it'll just be interesting to see what happens next, I guess, whether um, there's a green recovery and then everything gets derailed anyways by the U.S., whatever they decide to do, right? Right. We're in an age of chaos. Nothing matters. But everything <laughs> matters. You know, everything matters at this point. I think I can have no better ending than we live in an age of chaos. And so nothing but everything matters. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Emma. Uh, Emma McIntosh from National Observer. If you want to read her writing, go to nationalobserver.com and subscribe. Uh, support local media. Thanks so much, Emma. And have a wonderful day. Thanks for letting me rant. Uh, anytime.